Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business, where I talk with interesting people sharing life and business experiences to entertain, engage, build community, and provide information to help others succeed. If you're interested in learning more about one of our guests or how we are helping business owners generate wealth and build businesses they can sell or succeed at Exit Your Way, you can find more information on our website, ExitYourWay.com, or by contacting me directly, Damon at ExitYourWay.com. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone. Welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I'm your host, Damon Pastalka, and I see it looks like my screen is just like bright white. Can you see me there? I can. Uh, all right. Well, today with me, I'm really excited. I've got Andrew Johnson, and as soon as I did that, I hit a, hit a cord and shut my monitor off. So we're going to do this without a monitor, I guess. No, here it comes. All right. Um, I've got Andrew Johnson today with me from ShelfAware. So happy to have you here, Andrew. We're going to be talking about leveling the playing field with small businesses. And man, you are living this in, right. in your family right. business and ShelfAware and the other businesses that your family has. So excited to talk about today. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thank you for having me on and for the opportunity to share our story. I think it'll be pretty inspirational. We are trying to level the, the playing field. And I kind of talk with my brothers all the time about small is the new big business. And I think technology's helped us level that playing field. So looking forward to sharing all the the juicy details, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, it really, I mean, you are, you are right though. It really has. It's, it's technology has allowed small businesses to do things that they weren't able to do before because it's not just available to the mega companies. It's, it's available to the two person companies now in a lot of, a lot of cases. Yeah, it's so, wide open. It's the wild yeah. web. Uh, yeah. And the advantage small businesses have that I think you'll hear in my family business story is the ability uh, of being so small gives us the unique ability to fail fast. And so when it comes to technology adoption, a lot of it is about failing, uh, implementing, failing, learning from your mistakes and, and, you know, making the process better, implementing again. Uh, and we have the ability to do that in a small business environment and not just bring down like you know, millions of dollars in, in commerce, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. You know, thousands of connections, depending upon <laughs> your stability. So yeah. Um, yeah. It gives us a bit of flexibility to work. Yeah. With. So let's, let's start, let's start back always because you grew up in a family business. Your, your dad started this business a number of years ago and he started O-ring sales and service. Mm -hmm. And while it was, when did he actually start that? Where, where were you at in, in school age? Let's see. I wasn't born yet. So he started. Right, it, good. Um, yeah. A couple of years before I was born, I okay. uh, used my mom's nursing salary. He was um, as, as capital, basically a seed money, yeah, yeah. mom's hard earned paycheck. He didn't have really anything. He was a, a salesman for another industrial distribution company yep. in a family business environment. And that uh, family business brought on like one of the son-in-law's of the owner and the sales manager came to my dad and said, Doug, I'm sorry, you're the low man on the totem pole. So, I mean, writing's on the wall, but you're, you're probably out because we don't have enough business to go around for this. Yeah. For the son-in-law to have some accounts. And so my dad saw the writing on the wall. Thanks to the sales manager had a little bit of runway to plan his exit. And he jumped and started his own uh, competitor to that very same company uh, in the O-ring and seal and gasket industrial distribution space in 1982. 
All right. So I was born a few years after that, and my whole childhood was steeped in small business ownership and helping my dad. And I have three sisters, so four siblings or four four kids in our generation. Um, yep. I'm the only boy. I come in the middle, so I'm third third oldest. I got one younger sister. And yeah, we we lived it, and it was uh, kind of hand to mouth for most of my childhood. It wasn't until I got into um, middle school uh, and and high school that I kind of you know realized that my dad had made it to a degree. He had, he had survived you know the first yeah. decade uh, of small business ownership and was one of the few that could say he had a growing, thriving business and it was fairly self sustaining and. And we weren't worried about like it going out of business at that point in time. It was, it was a stable, stable business and a good growth trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little different growing up with a family business, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, um, and I, I talk about this pretty openly. My sisters talk about it quite a bit, but it's, it can be, it can be traumatic and there was plenty of, of trauma. There can be lots of, you know, unhealthy situations. My dad's situation was, he's a great man, uh, but he had a bit of an unhealthy situation where he got so insular with the business. He was so hyper-focused and in it, he had very few friends, like guy friends that he could, yeah. you know, share the journey with. And he, he's by nature, just kind of a lone wolf. So he just worked, 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 worked. And yeah. when um, things would go bad, he had nobody to really vent. So like my family, my sisters and I took the brunt of it uh, at the dinner table. I mean, when yeah. he had a bad day, we, we knew it right away when he walked in. It's like, oh, shoot, like steer clear dad. And it wasn't like he was he was certainly not, um, you know, abusive towards us yeah. or anything. But yeah. the venting, I mean, he would yell and like just scream. He used to throw things not at us. But like one time he yeah. threw a water cooler at the house, at the side of the house because he was <laughs> yeah, so yeah. frustrated. Broke it. Um, he threw a scoop of ice cream at the sink one time, just screaming about employees. And the ice cream inadvertently hit my little sister in the in the face. So she <laughs> running down her face. And of course, he apologized for it, but he didn't have a lot of healthy outlets. And uh, and it, it is really dramatic. I mean, your whole person gets wrapped up in in the success and failure of the business. And if it fails, like you know, your family's out of luck. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Real visceral, nasty sometimes. Yeah. And then there's, you yeah. know, the great moments too, the success and the the pride and all that that comes with um, the success eventually, but it is a grind yeah. to get there. Yeah. Yeah. But you, but you, since, since then, and you were, you were told me a story when we talked before about, you didn't really think you were going to work in your dad's business growing up for a while. Correct. Yeah. I think the early years, the the grind, you know, yeah. I've done a number on all of us and, and my sisters and I walked away with plenty of battle wounds and scars and kind of knew like, where well, there's no way I'm working with my dad. Not like we, we usually, and he, he's, he's the guy that like would share mostly the negative stuff. So like when he would have successes, he wouldn't tell us like he had an awesome day. He'd rarely, he'd come home and be in a good mood, but he wouldn't say like, here's why I'm in a good mood. I take a few victory laps or toot his horn. He wouldn't do that. He would just come home and we'd always hear about the bad stuff. So as far as I was concerned, the business was bad and it was like a nightmare. And then when I matured and got into high school, I was looking at becoming an optometrist and had started to look more closely with my, my you know, um, what do they call them? Like an advisor for college. And she was like, mm -hmm. well, what's your dad do? So I started contemplating, well, what does my dad do? And at that point, the business was pretty successful uh, and humming along. He had a good staff there and it's very stable. He had a couple of years where he could 
act like a business owner and put his feet up yeah. and take a step back. And it wasn't like just hand to mouth every day. And I thought, man, that's, that's got some freedom. He's got a lot of opportunity in front of him. He could, he could be creative. And so I put some serious thought into it and approached my dad in a family, in a family like function. And he had uh, a few uh, neighbors or friends. I don't remember what kind of function it was. And he was, um, throwing his arm around me saying, oh, here's my son, Andrew. He's going to be an optometrist. He's going to go to optometry school. I'm so proud of him. I said, you know what? I actually did. I'm not. I'm going to come work for you. <laughs> what? No way. So that was the announcement. And uh, I thought I was just going to walk into the, you know, to his, his company and get a job. And he said, no, you still got to go to college. So he made me get an accounting bachelor's because he said that was the one thing he really felt like he lacked was a, a firm understanding of his his finances, how they worked, you know, how the general mm -hmm. ledger worked, how the financial statements come together. And so I went off, got a four-year degree in accounting at a state college and came back and started working for him right out of college. Yeah. Yeah. So your early years in the company, what were you doing? Well, originally I was applying my accounting skills. So I spent one year opening and closing the books a full yeah. financial year uh, as the accountant unique scenario with the three sisters that's where i started working with my brother-in-laws so my sisters were uh, two of them are older than me so they were already um uh, my one sister had been married for several years by the time i got out of college and her husband who was supposed to be a, a high school teacher and a coach he couldn't find a job in the school system so he was originally packing boxes while i was in college and then by the time i made it to the family business he was the accountant and so I took over for him for a year and he kind of cross-trained into customer service. And um, I opened and closed the books and then we swapped back because he's, he's an introvert. So he was much happier in the accounting. Mm -hmm. and so he went back to his old job in accounting. And I went off to customer service and eventually moved into sales and um, eventually into outside sales and sales management. We had a small outside sales team that I, I managed for several years. Um, but it was it was like during that whole time that my other brother-in-law showed up. So my second oldest sister, she married uh, a, a guy named Jay. And I guess my oldest brother's name is Adam. So we had Adam, Jay, and me. And uh, the three of us were working. I, the easiest way to say it is we were working in the business in certain roles. Yeah. Um, but in 2012, it's where the story takes an interesting turn and goes from every other typical family business to to this crazy wild roller coaster of a ride, which is an innovation journey that starts in 2012. And it's when we we were basically up against a, a wall. We had to adopt a new ERP system. So we're implementing a new uh, ERP called Epic War Profit 21. It's a very common industrial distribution mm -hmm. ERP. And we had been on a archaic system since 1996. And that was, we didn't know it at the time, but that was the start of the wild incremental innovation journey uh, launched by our ERP implementation. So you can, you can take your innovation journey back to when you implemented that ERP system. Oh yeah. Yeah. Fundamental. And all of us talk about it. We had, um, so my, we had a former employee, his name's Brett Berger, great dude. And um, just salt of the earth. And my dad hired him right out of college and he was the accountant for many, many years until he got bored. He was a bachelor, had lots of hobbies and got bored with opening and closing the books of a small business. And so he, he wandered off into a fascinating career of software programming and data architecture. 
but we stay connected because he, he trained my brother Adam and they became pretty good friends. And so Adam took over for him in accounting and then I came along and did the accounting. And um, we were about to implement this new ERP system and Epicor had brought in a bunch of consultants and said, you know, here's how we do it. We have these data guys come in and they data merge a couple years of your, um, you know, your business data, invoicing data, and we'll bring all your item data and inventory data over for the last, you know, three, six years, maybe. And it's cost, you know, X, Y, Z, which was a lot of money, cost a lot of money to do the transition. And, and these guys don't. They're good. They do it all the time. Don't worry. Anyway, we talked to Brett about it. He's like, don't let them touch your data. It's like the data you have is the most valuable asset in your entire company. We're like, you know, baloney, baloney. Brett, we don't believe you. You're full of shit. And he said, no, 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 I am not. I can tell you for a fact that data is the most important thing. Here's mm -hmm. what we're going to tell the Epicore guys to buzz off. I'm going to come in since I'm a bachelor. Got lots of time. You buy me beer and pizza. We'll meet after hours uh, every night during the weekdays so we, we'd meet him every evening we'd have dinner carry out and some beer and he helped us uh, build um, basically a series of sql code that would help us bring all of our data from 1996 every piece of invoice line data every invoice line detail uh, all item metric data from 96 everything every piece of data we scrubbed it we cleaned it we organized it in sql and brought it over on in, in basically in one day but it took months to get there. So we yeah. built all the, the code to clean, scrub, and organize. Then we imported it all in, in like basically 24 hours, very stressful 24 hours. But it went off uh, perfectly. And after that three to six month period of transition to this new ERP system and with Brett's help, we really did thoroughly understand that, wow, the data we have is extremely valuable, runs everything we do. And, and we also got our feet wet in, in software programming, data architecture. Uh, we better understood where our, our little industrial distribution company data tables lived breathed how they interact mm -hmm. with each other how we could interplay different data sets to drive uh business analytics and we started i mean it launched us into this incredible journey of how we could um, automate our small business make it more efficient and um during one of those beer and pizza sessions we were sitting around it was just jamie adam and we were talking about where we wanted to take my dad's business I think everybody has these kind of visionary conversations and it's funny because at the time we're like, where do we want this business to be when we're 50, you know, and I was in my mid twenties or whatever. So I was like, man, by the time I'm, I'm 50, if, if O-Ring sales is doing $15 million in revenue, like that was a huge number to mm -hmm. get to 15 million in revenue, that'd be great. You know, and then Jay chimes in and he, I don't know, I don't know who chimed in with what, but we, we all chimed in with different aspects of what we really wanted. And we coalesced around this idea of growing the business to, we call it the 15, 15, 15 plan, but growing the business to 15 million, doing it with 15 people and keeping it inside a single location at 15,000 square feet. We thought if we could build that industrial distribution business around this 15, 15, 15 plan, which at the time, I think Herman Cain was running for president and he had like this 999 plan he'd come out with. And that's, I think that's mm -hmm the whole idea um, from him for, for three, three metrics, but the revenue model, I mean, everybody has that. I want to get to be X big. Yeah. Uh, but the other two pieces were all about efficiency and uh, operational excellence. We didn't, we didn't, we knew it, but we didn't have words for it yet. We just knew that we wanted to grow a bigger company, but without the bigger company headaches. Yeah. 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 So that, that 15, 15 plan, 15, 15, 15 plan launched us on this hyper focus of operational excellence where we were looking for 
any constraints inside our business that, that held us back and made our employees less efficient or unhappy or just generally pissed off. And then we would tackle those um, small projects of innovation, excellence, um, or operational excellence with some sort of an, an innovation in and around usually software. So we'd, we'd look at like Epicor and how Epicor handled transactions. And then we'd, we'd write software to try and make it better outside of mm -hmm. that. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, so that's, it's interesting as you, as you say this, because what we're talking about is leveling the playing field with small business. So in 2012, when you did this Epicor transfer, it really started your journey. Did you understand at that point what you really were doing as far as laying the ground to be able groundwork to be able to compete with very large companies? No, no. The honest answer is no. I think a lot of people that are successful in innovation say, oh, yeah, we had some like master plan. <laughs> that, like when people say that to me, it's the BS meter goes off because typically it starts with nothing more than passion and a desire to optimize um, and guts. Yeah. And, and and like not much of a plan. I mean, we didn't <laughs> we didn't bring in a consultant. We I mean, there's yeah. no I'm not I don't have I. I Sometimes people say like, you hate consultants. I don't, I don't hate consultants. I just, think yeah. sometimes people use them as a crutch yeah. and it honestly just comes down to the, what's inside of you and the hard work and your attitude and your passions and what you're willing to sacrifice to get there personally. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And without the business owners on board, I mean, consultants hands are tied so they can come yeah. with all the energy and the great ideas. But if the folks don't, don't really want to do it that are running the company, nothing's ever going to happen. So most of the ownership or most of the responsibility lies within with you, the owner. This way it does. Yeah, it does. And we really wanted to do it. And we had a really general plan and we didn't really have like a detailed roadmap on how to get there. We just viewed it as um, well. We viewed it as a series of innovations that were going to make us just generally more efficient. Uh, and that was about mm -hmm. it. Um, looking back, what, what it was is this incremental innovation journeys. It's a, it's a marathon sprint. It's not going to be something yep. you can't do this it transformation or digital transformation, um, really quickly. I mean, you can do it quickly, but it's still going to take you years inside of a company setting like this to get it done. Um, but you can move quick. So we kind of viewed it as a, a marathon as a series of sprints. And so we knew that with each project, we wanted to move really quick. And so we'd, We'd, we'd um, oh, see a bottleneck. That was the easiest way to put it. We'd see something that was a time suck or a bottleneck or a constraint. We would burn it down. That was my brother, Jay. He's the optimizer. Burn it down. He's the pyro. He'd light a match and just like burn it. And, and then Adam and I would freak out and say like, well, what are we going to do to replace it? And he'd be like, I don't know, but we're never doing that again. And so that was our process. And it was clumsy at times. It was brutal at times we were brutal in our kind of cold-hearted in our our uh, optimization efforts um my probably my greatest regret in the whole process was just moving that fast and we really didn't care about the collateral damage in our people department and so like our employees at first thought this was insane and and we drug a lot of people like kicking and screaming yeah you know, into the future and there's going to be some of that, but if, if we could have gone, you know, if we could go back in the time machine and do it all over again, we would have been more graceful. We would have given the vision to, to the whole team and said, Hey, this is where we're going. This is why we're doing what we're doing. And we would have made a bigger deal about our early wins, you know, um, 
because I think if if you do a, a few quick wins, you can you can get everybody on board with the concept. Yeah, quick, but we did a pretty bad job of that. <laughs> well, you know, you're not going to be perfect, but but you've gotten where you've gotten, and that's and that's good. That's good because the the interesting thing is you guys are competing with some fairly large companies, and and that is that's not something you see every day. That's for sure. No. And, yeah. Yeah. And like you said, you're, you're competing against multi-location companies with a single location. Mm -hmm. So you have to do things a bit differently. We do. Yeah. It started with operational excellence and then um, our increment incremental innovation journey went from being internal focus, which is making our company hyper, hyper efficient to this external focus where, okay, we're going to take the skills um, and software and hardware deployments and the skills we've learned and some of the connections we've made in mobile app developers and um, oh, database guys and uh, UI guys and UX guys. And we're going to figure out how to put something together uh, externally. So an innovation that we can drive a value to our customer base. And that was the genesis for uh, shelf aware. And it's it's the my primary focus now. It's what I do. 100% of my time is dedicated to uh, seeing Shelfware move forward. And it came about three years into our innovation journey. So we spent three long years just doing the hard, nasty work of operational excellence, yep. making the company hyper efficient, solving all of our headaches, putting out small fires, and making sure they wouldn't pop up again because we had a new process in place. Uh, and that gave us the experience we needed, the expertise we needed. And the confidence we needed and the time. I think that's what a lot of business owners tell me is, hey, how do we do something really cool? It's like, well, you do all the uncool stuff first. And the reason you have to do all the uncool stuff is because you have to free yourself of the daily burden and fires. And if you don't, if you don't put all those out and keep them from cropping up, you'll never find the white space to do something really cool. You have to be able to just lock yourselves in a room and say, nobody's knocking. Like the three of us could lock ourselves in, in my brother's office and Nobody came to the door and said, hey, this is broken. Hey, we need help with this. Hey, can you help us here? Hey, can you tell us how to do this? Um, and that's where we had gotten the company in 2015, which gave us the white space or the the margin in our day to dream up shelfware. Yeah. Well, that's that you, that point. I want to reemphasize that again. Doing the uncool stuff first. So you're not continuously putting out fires and you can kind of sit back and watch the business run and think about the next thing you're going to do, because that uncool stuff is the only way, like you said, to get to that point to where you can actually think about the, put the thinking time in to what's really going to build your future yeah, or what's going to continue to build your future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell folks today, uh, and, and if they want to get in the innovation game, you know, you need to have a team of people that are innovating. In our case, it was my brothers and I, which is a unique situation. Mm -hmm. uh, but a team of people, you know, that know the business really well, and they need to be given a really large budget, but not of money, of time. That's what yeah. this organic incremental innovation just takes a ton of time. It's yeah. not really expensive. The tools are fairly inexpensive in the cloud um, atmosphere ecosystem that we've developed uh, from a tech, tech stack basis mm -hmm. uh, it is really equipping. And so it's not very expensive and there's lots of plug and play pieces to it. It just takes a ton of time to figure out how you're going to make it work for your nuanced business. And that's what every business is. It's very nuanced. And when you get into them and you peel back the layers, you yeah. find out, whoa, well, I didn't know, um, you know, O-rings could be this 
complex and selling them could be this um, you know, intricate and it, and it is. So you have to make these customized innovation solutions work for you and it just takes a ton of time. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good stuff. Because it, it is, as you were going through this, now you talked about this, you don't have a huge budget. I mean, so how do you think that really helped when you looked at the solutions you did uh, not, not having tons of money to be able to spend on these things? I don't, I don't know. Um, it would have been nice. It certainly made us uh, come up with solutions that were based in reality and practical. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also made us implement things quickly. So I, I think like I've seen it a lot in the industrial space. You'll have tech companies enter the space and come up with solutions for the industrial space that are too high tech, too sexy. Uh, and typically like what it looks like then is the solutions themselves are too expensive, too complicated, too hard to deploy, you know, whatever. Just the, the list of prerequisites is way too long. Um, in our scenario, since we we're bootstrapping everything, like if we, if we couldn't prop it up in, you know, a couple of days, like we weren't doing it. Yeah. We wouldn't, you know, go to my dad and in like 30 seconds, explain to him why we needed to spend two or three grand, then forget it. Had to be real, you know, quick ROI. That's what we're looking for. Yeah. And you make you make great points there because in the in the smaller business you have to um, get that ROI going fast. You don't have six months to just kind of just hang out and work through it. And do it. You want to because you got to see what it's going to do and get quickly and move on to the next project. Yep. So ideally, yeah. yeah. So. Now you're sitting here and you're in a little different place. We'll talk about shelfware because I think it's a super cool innovation. What's it like for you working in the family businesses now? I mean, what, what, what's, I mean, cause you've, you've been in it a while now. Mm -hmm. what, what do you, what do you like about it? What are, what are some of the other things that are frustrating about it? But first of all, what do you really enjoy about it? Well, it's the same thing I enjoyed about like looking at, my dad, it's the opportunity. Um, I love the risk. I do. I love risking stuff. Um, I love, I love winning. Yeah. So I love competing and winning. Um, I love doing new things, obviously plowing new ground. And I, I do love, uh, and it's an overused term now, but I do love disrupting uh, marketplaces and putting people on their heels and, um, it's certainly not what I think like that wasn't in our 15, 15, 15 plan. We didn't say like 15, 15, 15 and wreck a market, you know, with some, some cool system. It was yeah. What happened, but where I'm at now is a really fun, fun space where we can rethink, uh, like go to markets, uh, rethink market strategies, uh, and design, um, competitive advantages, you know, um through collaboration with other businesses so that's that's fun the position i'm in now with shelfware allows me to work with lots of other small businesses and lots of other industry sectors um so learning about their nuanced business mm -hmm. is always fascinating so I yeah that aspect of it so let's let's start talking a little bit about shelfware because it's it's really interesting so you're getting the o-ring sales and service you're getting that rolling. Things are going really well for you there. 
and you get presented with an opportunity. Let's talk about kind of the, the, the nemesis that really created Shelfware. Sure. In the industrial marketplace for a long, long time, there's been um, a growing need, desire, demand for a um, service called vendor managed inventory. And it's this whole idea of, of really large consumers, typically manufacturers, you know, think like Caterpillar, John Deere, the big, big, big boys. When, when you get to a certain level in manufacturing, your raw material input supply chain just gets huge and mm-hmm. you need just so many different product verticals. And a lot of them, most of them have a segment of that product vertical that's highly engineered. And so it's not just managing commodity inputs, it's managing highly engineered product inputs, which have a whole host of oh, hurdles you got to jump like, um, you know, lead times and custom tooling and custom materials. And it's a nightmare. So mm-hmm. the need continued to build and build and build for large consumers to offload the, the burden of that management on the supply chain to the supply base. So vendor managed inventory or supplier managed inventory uh, just grew and grew and grew. Now, historically, it's been heavy in consignment. So like a lot of suppliers would agree to run the inventory for the manufacturer at their facilities. They're, they're managing the inventory values and the shelf contents at the customer's facility. So they'd send folks on site. And when they went that far, they'd go ahead and say, and we'll run it on consignment. So we won't charge you until you take it off the shelf. And so really that consignment piece is what kept my dad uh, from ever offering uh, vendor managed inventory service in our business until he basically just got, he got forced. We had some long-term customers that were great. We loved them. We didn't want to lose their business. And they had kind of come to us with that attitude of, hey, management, ownership, corporate executives are saying we must offload uh, the burden of supply chain management uh, to you, our valued supplier. And if you're not willing to, to run a VMI program for us, we're going to have to go to a new supplier. So that was, that was probably around like 20, 14, we were put up against a wall basically and said, do this or you're out. And, um, you know, I had a couple of years of our innovation journey under us. And so we knew, Hey, we, we, we can, we can quickly put out a VMI program that's better than anybody else's. And the way we're going to do it is by monitoring product consumption without people. So that was the big, one of the big reasons beyond consignment. My dad didn't want to commit to do it was it takes human capital and yep. brand locations. So if you're going to run vendor managed inventories, the historic model is people all over the country. You have to have branch yeah. locations. So cent- like, you know, centralized hubs where you store localized inventory for these large manufacturing customers. So uh, in, in every kind of city that you wanted to do it. And because you had networks of dudes and trucks driving around from those branch locations servicing those customers. Mm-hmm. So it was just a capital intensive game that we never really felt like playing. And we had that 15, 15, 15 plan in the back of our mind of, hey, we're going to grow our business, but keep it single location, 15,000 square feet. So we kind of locked ourselves in a room like we usually do and went to the whiteboard and started coming up with uh, ideas around how we could collect inventory consumption remotely. And we all coalesced around the idea of using RFID, so radio frequency identification uh, is what RFID stands for. It's... um, a technology that's been around a really long time. People use it all the time. They just don't really understand, you know, what it what it entails. But that's um, Bluetooth is wrapped up in that. So any Bluetooth audio, mm-hmm. that's, that's a version of RF uh, frequency bandwidth. And then you have NFC, which is near field communication. That's what you use, like Google Pay, Apple Pay, Samsung mm-hmm. Pay. Uh, you're tapping credit cards. 
uh, your hotel a room key card now. Yep. Most elevator key cards, those are all kind of near field. So those are RFID. So it's transmitting data using radio waves, uh, sometimes over short distances in the, in the payment applications and sometimes over long distances. Historically, in the industrial space, you've seen RFID deployed in asset management. So they were putting mm -hmm. very expensive, you know, five, ten dollar RFID tags on very expensive assets. And that would allow them the ability to track the assets, entry, exit out of locations, track where it's at, potentially even track, um, you know, when the last time it was used um, and mm -hmm. repaired or maintained. And so we we just looked at that technology as, hey, this is the time to deploy a, a vendor management inventory system utilizing RFID. Um, we we had the luxury of not being in the space yet and had the experience of developing uh, several different technologies in and around counting scales. So we, we had, had looked at, there were several different solutions already deployed that we looked at closely and said like, you know, none of the solutions pull out enough cost, enough complexity and enough human capital to, to make us want to develop a better version of current solutions. Mm -hmm. So we just scrapped everything. So did we want barcode scanners? No. Okay. It still doesn't really solve any problems. Did we want way nodes underneath all the product bins? No, because we we had played around a lot with way nodes and invented a account a smart counting scale, and we, you know how complex and capital intensive that would be and mistake ridden. So no, so we picked up RFID, and then we had to decide you know when and how we're going to collect mm -hmm. the data of of customer consumption. So we applied the RFID to the packaging. So we we have product labels that are made smart with UHF RFID chips. That allows us to track product consumption at the factory without any people involved. So somebody at the factory level grabs a box of fasteners and walks away. We know in real time that they, they took the fasteners off the shelf and they walked back to the assembly station. And so as a supplier, we can ship them more fasteners. Um, O-rings, we were applying RFID smart labels to poly bags, plastic bags full of O-rings and tracking package quantities at consumer locations. Deployed the first system in 2015 uh like really quick we had a problem yeah. uh three months so it went from like whiteboard to software and and deployment and maybe three months six months six months top i'd have to go back and like look at all my email chains to figure out the timing but three to six months we had the thing out in the field and deployed at a real customer's location tracking actual money uh volumes of, in of inventory for a gearbox manufacturer um the whole deal was done with like lunch beer and a handshake and then yeah system and told them if it didn't work we'd come back and fix it all you know clean it all up yeah yeah so, yeah so now now you you well it's quite it's quite a great example of what we're talking about leveling the playing field with small business you were you were at a crossroads where you're going to lose a customer or you're going to come up with a solution yeah and and when you applied the same kind of innovative solution or problem solving that you did throughout the business you just took this is just another problem we're going to solve like we have before and we're going to be more efficient and better than anyone else mm -hmm. and we're going to do it quick mm -hmm. because man six months to go out with a product to test is is uh it's pretty aggressive yeah and that's what we're all about is we're aggressive and we're fast yeah. and we yeah. fail fast too so yeah so. yeah jared jared says speedy implementation nice work yeah that's for sure because yep. you 
I mean, and that's really when we talk about and what what it's I love hearing the story and, and understanding how you did this with shelfware, because this is something that you've competed against some of the biggest people in MRO type supplies and won. Mm-hmm. And because they are stuck with legacy systems that can't adapt as easily, we'll just say, because you're moving a fleet of boats rather than a single boat that is is made to turn quickly. So the um, as you did this, what are some of the things that became apparent to you? It's like, I never thought of this, but this is another application or, or yeah. some things that have really kind of started to open up as you, as you yeah. use this a little more. Great question. Originally, um, we, we knew we had to offer that, that first customer a good yeah. managed inventory system. And we knew we, we wanted to do it or we wouldn't do it without eliminating a lot of the, the human capital. So we, we had very few people in a very efficient company. And we knew if we let one of them out, to drive around in a truck, go on site and monitor inventory values the traditional way, uh, we would hate it. And there's yeah. too many soft costs wrapped up in that. And our cost to serve that customer would skyrocket and it would destroy everything we were trying to build and eventually lead to a branch location. And we'd hate that too. So uh, that was our like original, just selfish ambition uh, in and around cost to serve. Like we were going to do it, but we we're going to do it efficiently. What yeah. we didn't anticipate was once we started putting smart labels on all the product packaging, the amount of data we gleaned from basically having eyes on the customer's inventory 24-7 was incredible. So six months in to the deployment, it was working. Like the, the basic function was working. They would remove a bag from the shelf and, and we would be packing the bag in our warehouse, you know, yeah. away from the deployment. And just minutes later, so a blue collar folks at the manufacturing facility, almost as fast as they can consume it, we were packing it, like getting ready to re- mm-hmm. refill them. And uh, that was great. And we were kind of patting ourselves on the back and uh, we pulled down all the data from all the inventory consumption over the, the first six months. And we brought the uh, manufacturing consumer in to our conference room and we said, all right. So obviously we've not run you out of any parts in six months. And I said, yes. You have not. So that's the primary objective of a vendor management inventory is don't run you out of inventory. But we're here to tell you that we've looked at all the data analytics. And because we're tracking package consumption on a per item basis, we can tell you that your inventory is 55% too heavy. We could reduce it 55% and cut your on hand inventory value in more than half. And yep. that'll save you cash on hand. That was our big like announcement, you know. So we dropped that bomb on them thinking they were just going to fall out of their chairs. And they, they, they were they were impressed. But the, the primary gentleman involved it from the customer's location, the manager, the plant manager, the supply chain manager, he was staring at the data because we had all the data up on the screen to illustrate our point. Yeah. Yeah. He was staring at the projector screen. And he was like, that's that's great. I'm glad. That's a lot of money. We're happy. I'm just go ahead. Yeah. Cut the inventory by 55 percent. That'd be great. Be fine. We're like, Richard, what are you what are you staring at? He goes. I'm just noticing that a lot of the high volume inventory, we're not turning it first in, first out. We're not, it's not fresh. And and there's, there's date codes and lot codes and heat codes that we need to be paying attention to in this data. Uh, we have, we have old inventory. We have stale inventory. I need to tell my inventory manager to go back there and move some of the inventory uh, to the front and make sure that gets picked before the stuff that's coming in gets picked. We're like, what? And he's like, you need to make me a, a fresh report. Can you make me a fresh report? I'm like, Sure, we'll make you a fresh report. We hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. 
So that was our first revelation, you know, by the user. And then staring at the data, my, my brother-in-law, Adam, who's kind of our, our data man, he says, um, you know, Richard, another thing I want to talk to you about was uh, we've looked at all the timestamps of when you pull parts and what you pull together, because we can look at the timestamps and, and say, okay, you always pull these seven items inside the same five minute window. So clearly they must go in the same assembly. So we think that these are your top five bills of material. And he was like, whoa, you know, my bill of materials. And we're like, yeah, I mean, for all your, for all your builds from that product vertical anyway, we can tell you exactly what goes into each gearbox. And he's like, well, that's crazy. Kind of creepy. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But the point we want to make with it is how about we co-locate those items from a physical location, a bin location standpoint. So when your, your folks walk into the inventory area, they can get in and out faster. Like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That'd be great. If, if we could rearrange pick sequencing, uh, that would be really helpful as well. We'd love to just have the folks get in and out in a convenient fashion. Um, from there, we moved to like, hey, um, you always take two bags of this, but one bag of that. Why is that? Oh, it's because your built assembly quantity is 10. Why don't we just package all the subcomponents in, in packages of 10 so they can just grab one of each? I'm like, oh, yeah, let's just match the package quantities to your consumption habits or your build metrics. We started doing stuff like that. Um, another thing that blew us away was, um, so, so oh, we, wow. we, we had a lot of success with the first user. And that's, you know, when my wheels as the kind of the entrepreneurial, the dude that's always way, way out in front of folks, I'm, I'm not even on, I wouldn't call myself the cutting edge because a lot of times I find myself on the bleeding edge where, yeah, you know, I, I come up with stupid ideas like, hey, we should, we should do this. And I'm really like, no, it's an awful idea. But I, <laughs> I was way out there on the bleeding edge thinking about, okay, this is where we're going to take this thing. And um, I as I was moving on. I was moving on to the next hill that we're going to climb with this system, with shelf aware and what customer we could go take. And so we latched onto another really, really big account. Um, and so just to put things in perspective, when I started with my dad and out of college, we were like three and a half million in revenue. And we had come up with this big 15, 15, 15 plan. And um, a few years into our innovation journey in 2012, we, we were adding million dollar accounts um, once once a year, twice a year, huge growth chunks. So I, I latched onto one of these big accounts and we were using Shelfware to do it. So I pitched Shelfware to another big user and they, um, they were, I mean, it was much bigger than the gearbox manufacturer we implemented with. This user used, uses, still does, it's still on the platform. Nobody's ever unplugged Shelfware. Um, but they were using or consuming almost a million dollars in O-rings and gaskets a year. And it's a big number. And it's a kind of a big OE original equipment account, big manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And my dad, I told him, I was like, they would be a great fit for, you know, X, Y, Z reasons for shelf aware. And my dad and one of our oldest sales guys, Dennis, basically just laughed me out of the room. They said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bloodbath of an account. You know, you do not want that business. We were in there 20 years ago. And my dad always told the story of basically those kind of accounts. When you win them, it's like winning a bar fight. If you're the guy that wins the bar fight, you know, your eyes going to be like falling out of your socket and your arms. Gonna yeah. Be like, oh, I won victory. Okay. It's not a fight you want to win because if you get market share there, they're going to bloody you as a supplier. Yeah. You'll be left with like nothing, no meat on the bones. Your margins will be very slim. And I said, I get that. And they had a, they had 15, so 15 or so suppliers. We put shelf work to them. The plant manager who was new at the time, he had tons of problems in supply chain on this one product vertical seals. And he said, uh, 
I believe it's shuffleboard. I'll give you the whole package. So he kicked out. I stopped the letter uh, in my office, wrote a letter to all 15 suppliers and said, thanks for your years and years of service. But we're going to this value added supply chain system and why? Adios. So wrote this form letter to all of his suppliers and we set an aggressive install date, installed the platform. And my family business went from zero dollars of sales at this customer to you know almost a million dollars. So big volumes in the first week, we looked at the shelfware data and we're like, after we installed, which the install was a whole nother story. That was a huge elephant we had to eat very quickly. You know, they say one bite at a time. Well, we were shoving bites in our face, like before we had chewed the first bite, trying to install yeah. the platform as massive manufacturer. And um, get back after the install, we're like ragged from the install and the data starts pouring in. Cause of course, as soon as we install the thing, they're not stopping consuming yeah packages are flying off the shelf a couple states away and we're watching the data in real time stack up in the shelfware system our first order gets spit out of shelfware we're like holy cow we have like i think it was over a thousand pick lines we had to do and we had a, we agreed to a consolidated ship date of like a friday and so we were trying to pull down a thousand lines in one day and we had everybody like all hands on deck we only have like at the time we had like 15 employees tops so me, I was in there, all the brothers were yeah. there. Everybody, the family, yeah. kids, grandpa. Uh, <laughs> what we didn't realize was the, you know, again, going back to the things we never realized was we had just deployed a real-time data system. We were we were watching their inventory move out of the system Monday through Friday or sometimes Saturday, Sunday. Why would why did we wait till Friday to pick and pull the order? As yes. a supplier, we should be picking, packing, pulling, staging the order and then ship it Friday. Yes. So like it took us like three or four weeks of killing ourselves <laughs> before we realized, hey, we can we can streamline our shipping process. Yeah. Monday we'll pull a small order, pick a packet, pull it, stage it. Tuesday we'll we'll pull a small order based on what they've pulled that day. Yeah. Stage it, and then by the time Friday comes around, we won't have a thousand line pick ticket warehouse. Yeah. Oh, idiots! It's so stupid. But you know that's that's what happens when you're out there plowing ground at an alarming rate. You do. Get so far ahead of yourself sometimes yourself. But the real-time data, I mean the real time you're still just what you talked about by you enabling real-time data from your customers on a daily basis or hourly or mm -hmm. whenever it happens, right? Made what you've done is you've allowed the entire supply chain to become more efficient because you're not queuing and then a big dump, not queuing and a big dump. Just like you said, you can probably with one or two people take care of something like that. Whereas if you're going to do it once a week, it's like seven people. Yeah. So to your point, we have one shipper. The family business still only has one yeah. shipper. And they do, when I started with my dad, you know, it's three and a half million. They just eclipsed 12. They're on their way to 12 and a half million. Same staff, mm -hmm. same headcount, same wow. people. Just, yeah. you know, four times the business. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we're we're getting close to time here. I want to I want to just get a couple more things for a wrap up because Andrew, it's awesome talking about it because a, a RFID, man, we talked about one before. I mean, I was back in the early two thousands. We were yeah. talking about this in the grocery industry and talking about how that could change the way groceries are purchased. And and as I was running the the company that made checkout counters for grocery stores and mm -hmm. we're talking about those things and it's, so it's really cool to see that you're using it the way you are and how it's powering the real-time data that allows you to be much more efficient than than other vmi methods are 
But I was wondering what what do you see for the future of this kind of application? What what's really you're going because you're out there a ways and you said that I'm out out there kind of. Yeah. Yeah. You're in the bleeding edge. What are some of the things you go? Oh, God, this would be really neat if we did that. Okay, all right. This is this is a a, a mind dump from the bleeding edge. So okay, mind dump from the bleeding edge. Here we go. Crazy wrong on this, but where Shelfware is heading, the bleeding edge, where where my mind's at, mm -hmm. is um, after the success of Shelfware, the consumers came back and said, "This is a sick system. We want you, O-ring Sales and Service, to sell us everything." My dad's generation was, that's how he was thinking, great, we'll do it because that's how industrial distributors get bigger. My brothers and I said, we have a new business model. We call it cloud sourcing. So what we did is we took the shelfware platform. So it's software and hardware that we licensed to other industrial distribution or industrial suppliers who are niche in their own product verticals. And so uh -huh. what we're doing is through collaboration, allowing everybody on the platform, it's, it's open. Anybody can hop on, license the Salesforce system. We're giving really large consumers the ability to put their favorite suppliers together on one slick inventory supply platform that's flexible enough to go across product verticals. So small parts <laughs> to large parts to floor stock items. You can apply the same platform. So consumers get the omni-channel they want, one set of rules across multiple suppliers, but the suppliers stay independent super hyper-focused on the product vertical, which means best-in-class product pricing, R&D, yeah. um, best support, best sales support. It's like best of all worlds. And so together, the Shelfware platform is going to have a collective of hyper-specialized suppliers that can that can service the largest consumers in the industry. We can all do it from our single locations if we want. You can have multiple branches, but you don't certainly have to have 2,000 branches like our competitors, which would be the giants like Fastenal, Granger. And I really yeah. believe Amazon business in the future is going to be a huge uh, competitor for yeah, it is. suppliers. And so that's going to give us the small independents, the ability to compete against the giants uh, by using technology to, to put us everywhere. We're going to use the power of the internet, the power of data to be omnipresent, omni-channel, and uh, consumers will benefit from it. So that's, that's the bleeding edge brain dump. Uh, it's going to be a collaborative approach to industrial supply called cloud sourcing. And that's, that's the competitive advantage for the small guy. Man, that that that's super cool because what you what you will enable is true small business innovation at a level that these large companies aren't able to really understand now because they've got to go with I got to buy it from everybody. I can't buy it from the best, best of the best because I got to buy it from somebody that sells me way more SKUs than that. Cause I can't do that. Yeah. So what you're saying is you give, you give Damon who makes really good, whatever um, the opportunity to be like, like the biggest in the industry supplying the biggest in the industry. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I want the little guys to be able to go to John Deere and collectively say, Hey, John Deere, we know you have, you know, 15 operating companies in the, in the North America. We can service all of them, the, the, the 20 or so shelf force suppliers, and we can cover all your product verticals from hard hats uh, all the way to O-rings and seals and gaskets and everything in between. Uh, and, and you'll get all the data in one spot as a consumer. That's what they want. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I think the, the weakness we're going after is the competitive advantage of the big guys. We're trying to flip that. So their advantage is their footprint. Their advantage it is. is capital. 
Uh, and look it at is. companies like Fastenal, they have 2,000 plus branch locations yep. and all the human capital. That's their advantage. If we can flip it with technology and turn that into their disadvantage, their, their bigness is now their weakness. Um, and the way we make it their weakness is by being nimble and, and doing uh, all of the service and value add that they do, but without the need for people and branch locations. Yeah. So all of a sudden yeah. their capital investments become just weights around their ankles and it just sinks them. Um, they, they don't yeah. have the they don't have the product expertise either and that's kind of the dirty secret secret yeah. oh yeah supplies. a lot of the companies like my family business supply a lot of product to the big guys like Fastenal and granger and msc we're behind the scenes we're the experts we know everything about o-rings yeah and gaskets and we've been doing it our whole lives and if we could just get the service level offering but without the branch locations needed we can like you know make a huge leap forward in competing with these guys so yeah yeah we have gone head to head with them and knocked them out at big names Big, big, nice, nice. Well, it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome talking to you, Andrew, because it's so, it's so, uh, using technology to flip the script, you're just turning it upside down and making what, what is, what's once a strength, a weakness and, and allowing the biggest companies in the world to get the absolute best product. And yep. I think that's cool. And that's, that's very cool. And, and that is disruption. So, you yes, know, it is. We want to make just, that's all the next blockbuster. You know, you never know. You never know. know. So, I just want to say thanks, Saya, for being here. And Jared had a question too. I was wondering if you're active outside of the US. So, well, we could be because it's the internet, but um, yeah. currently not with Shelfware. So, but if you know, somebody outside the US, let's do it. Yeah. So Jared, go ahead and connect with Andrew uh, on LinkedIn there and you guys can can talk about that. But Andrew, thanks so much for being here today. This is such an exciting technology you guys have delivered or developed and watching it get deployed. And I think it's ultra cool, too, because you're allowing small businesses to compete with the largest in the world. And your idea about the, the shelf aware cloud sourcing ecosystem is just incredible. I think yeah. it's it's really going to be fun to see how that evolves. So thanks so much for being here, David. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We'll have to have a follow-up and see if we fall off the bleeding edge, you know, yeah. come the bloody of the bleeding edge or if we, uh, you know, if we make it. So we'll- Oh yeah, definitely. 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 Sounds good. Thanks everyone else for listening. Thanks for the comments, Jared, Syed, everyone else that's been around listening today. So happy to have you. We'll be back again Thursday. Thanks a lot.